Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, the new head of the Megalopolis Art Department... <laughs> It's Gabe Lample oh, and Bella. <laughs> I, I was only going to bring that up on my Twitter. You know, me and Francis have a lot to talk about before we get going on that one. Uh, <laughs> Good how, to be here. How how closely have you been following the the like Megalopolis news this this oh. past week? For for context for our listeners, this is the new Francis Ford Coppola movie that I I feel. I mean, it's already exciting that it's a new Francis Ford Coppola movie that you know has like adam driver and aubrey plaza like this huge giant cast um but is also a very eclectic cast too a very i would say so out of left field for him yes yes and is like shooting like down the street from me so it's like extra funny like reading all of this stuff and then like seeing on my twitter timeline being like oh shoot that's like around the corner from like the grocery store i go to or something like that uh no i would say i am following pretty pretty thoroughly um especially the most recent holly i believe it was the hollywood reporter article where yes. coppola made attempts to debunk some of the more adam adam driver as well who apparently like called and was like that none of that is true like the, i i've been on some disastrous movie sets and let me tell you this is not one of them see and and in 10 years, once we have the movie, I think we're going to get a great tell-all book from someone in the art department. Well, let, let me really tell you, Gabe, going on. I, I read this past week that I, I forget which documentarian there is, but there is someone who is on set shooting a like Heart of Darkness-esque oh, like beautiful. movie about the making of of this. I don't, I don't know. When I heard these rumors, it was like, I don't know, considering the history of every other movie he's ever made, I would be a little surprised if a Francis Ford Coppola production was not like constant chaos and stuff like that. If it didn't go off the rails a little bit. Right. It wasn't like over budget and all this stuff. Like, I don't know. I'd be like surprised if it was like going swimmingly or something like that. Well, you know, and, and I'm sure you're kind of aware of this too, Jesse, you know, he's put up a good chunk of his own money to this budget. Yes. So the real question is, what is that amount going to turn into by the time it hits theaters? Right, exactly. So as a film fan, I'd say these are some of the most fun and interesting and very entertaining stories to follow. Right. Because you can really never guess where they're going. No, no. <laughs> Not at all. Well, well, we'll put a pin in that and maybe I'll like pass Francis at the, the Trader Joe's or something and get him on the podcast. Who, yeah, we'll I was going to say, if you get the insider <laughs> scoop, please let me be you know let me know okay i I need to know what's going on um gabe we're gonna kind of do a sort of grab bag episode it's been a few weeks i've you know put put a bunch of uh episodes that were sort of pre-done to come out around the holidays took some time off from the show and we're gonna kind of recap a bunch of stuff that's happened in the last few weeks since i've been doing like recent episodes And it it just so happened that as you and I were kind of like planning this, we realized that the Golden Globes were this past Tuesday. (laughs) And, you know, I don't really feel like we need to sort of undo the full like award season unpacking of the Golden Globes. But it made me want to ask you this sort of 
existential question of what do we want from an award show or what is the purpose of an award show anymore? Because I just kept thinking about it considering, you know, the Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, this organization that puts on that award show, ran into some controversy a few years ago. The show didn't air last year as they attempted to kind of rebrand. It was back this year, but I would say the clips I saw, the vibe seemed to be kind of like an audition tape for like, please someone else pick us up. Because this was sort of, as I understand, kind of the end of their contract with NBC. And so I guess there's there's some some question about like, well, is it even going to air next year? Is it going to, if NBC picks it up again, is it just going to go to Peacock? There was also news this week about how the SAG Awards are just going to, air on netflix as they come up and yes you know there this has been especially when we talk about the oscars this sort of like lamenting question about like do people watch award shows anymore is is there even a purpose to them what do we want from an award show what should these shows be doing um i think it's this question is even more interesting and considering the globes because that is an award show that as i was kind of explaining to people this past week is like exists sort of by necessity or by convenience i guess i guess that's the better word it exists by convenience of like nbc wanting a big glossy award show at a time when those got gangbusters ratings the hollywood foreign press association gets like a big platform for their awards and nominations and picks and hollywood gets to kind of like play along in this sort of boozy night that at, at the end of the day like you know, the people voting in the Globes are not necessarily going to vote in the Oscars. So it, it's not no. a one-to-one, you know... It's, it's two it's, different it's not worlds, a, It's not a one-to-one pathway that way, but is is a good promotion... Traditionally been a good promotional tool for some, like, end-of-award-season movies to maybe get, like, a little bit more attention in, like, this year, like, someone could say, oh, The Fablemans won Best Drama, so now I'm going to check out The Fablemans and stuff like right. that. So Hollywood gets to play along because it's a good promotional tool. Hollywood Forward Press Association gets a big, splashy platform. NBC gets an award show that they can get gangbusters ratings anymore. But that it this show has now become sort of, I think, like the shining example of like what happens when that like mutually beneficial ecosystem sort of collapses and then like what we're left with you and I were talking before we hopped on mic is kind of like being a little bit baffled that like it seemed like the the film Twitter world was willing to just sort of wrap its arms around the, the this award show again and yes. the the sort of the thirst for this by like a certain kind of like media industry that has sort of sprung up around covering the awards race. I'm I'm, I'm spitting out a lot of stuff right now, but no, I'm just sort no. of what. What is the purpose of this anymore? You know, Jesse, it's it's a valid question, and I think one that's become more and more relevant in recent years mm-hmm. as fans and, and, like you said, most importantly, film Twitter have hit this point of realizing how inconsequential these awards are in the long run. Mm-hmm. And especially with something like the Golden Globes, I always called those the Vanity Award show, even more so than something like the Oscars. <laughs> To where it's everybody gets their participation medals and gets to drink more than their body can handle and gets Mm -hmm. to go home. Now, you know, with that being said, we're living in a year and in 2022, we had some really, really special films that 
show reminded audiences why they should go to the theater. Mm-hmm. So something like everything everywhere all at once getting the love that it that it has is thrilling to me. I think that's great to see. Um, I'm even thrilled, you know, with the win of Kate Blanchett for Best Actress for Tar. Those sort of awards make me very happy. But at the same time, in the long run, do those matter for these actors and for us as film fans? Not necessarily. And especially if you're like us and are able to kind of follow these award shows, the list of priorities puts the Golden Globes at the very bottom. These don't matter in the grand scheme of things. So if you're going to watch them or not, it's more or less to see, A, how they're going to mess things up along the way, or B, if there's a film that you want to see sweep the award season, you follow along for those reasons. Personally, from the clips I've seen, and I believe it was Gerard Carmichael who hosted, Mm -hmm. it just seems like there's this grasping at straws mentality of this show trying to stay relevant. Mm-hmm. When the relevancy just isn't there anymore. And it's frustrating to see. But at the same time, you know, we have the SAG Awards. We have the Oscars. Even something like the Emmys. Those carry, I think, so much more weight for Hollywood compared to something like this. And I mean, look at some of the controversy surrounding Brendan Fraser, who was nominated mm-hmm. and didn't show up due to past experiences with the HFPA. Yeah. I mean, the writing's on the wall in my eyes. Yeah, and I think this even, you know, it's interesting you bringing up, like, the Guild Awards, like the SAG Awards, or stuff like the Emmys, or, you know, I would say the one thing the Oscars still has is is prestige. And kind of like all, all those other shows that you mentioned, this idea of, like, those organizations and those awards having a sort of historical weight of importance to them. But even, I think, we're now in in this this sort of interesting spot where that is it like that's all that's all they have and that's i think take the will smith bit aside that's what i thought was (laughs) sort of like appalling and sort of like made last year's oscars maybe one of the worst oscars i've ever seen is the sort of like unwilling to even just embrace that and and it's seeming like the show's um thirst to sort of once again be at the center of the culture and being this big event that everyone tunes in the watch and kind of having all these various gimmicks and sort of like as you said kind of grasping at the straws for like what can can this group watch us and can we do this bit and stuff while also kind of being like you know to pushing the movies themselves to the side and i think like that's their only card at this point is the movies and just sort of embracing like I, i i just think we're at this moment where like all of these networks and i don't know whether it's 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 so much like the organizations like the academy or the hollywood foreign press association or the the guilds and stuff that want these sort of big televised award shows or if it's the networks just sort of being like we've created all these award shows because this was traditionally a model that would get people to watch tv but people aren't watching them anymore no. And and you can argue that's because live television is down just across the board. You could argue that's because movies aren't at the center of culture anymore because there's so many other forms of media, whether it be television shows, streaming stuff, YouTube, TikTok, that other people are just spending their time watching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or, or you know, you could even say like 
the idea of people would watch like the Globes or the Oscars because they wanted to see the movie stars. Well, you can now see your favorite movie stars on Instagram every single day. Oh, and yeah. so like, is there even a, uh, uh, people don't feel the need to sort of tune into an award show to see Brad Pitt, even though I don't think Brad Pitt's on Instagram to my knowledge, but um, <laughs> you, you, you get what I mean. And so it's, oh, it's, absolutely. it's interesting, this kind of push and pull and the globes being this weird example of like, I, just sort of looking at the stuff online and kind of thinking about it this week being like, all right. I kind of want the Oscars to exist because there's like a historical sort of like pedigree of importance behind that. But sort of the idea of like watching all these clips from the Globes this past week and being like, why are we doing this? Like this, this kind of doesn't, this, this feels like us trying to force kind of like, can we create a show that's going to really get people back invested in this? And it was like, this sort of only ever existed as like a TV product and everyone just sort of ran with it because there was some mutual benefits, but you know, now no one gets a benefit from it really, except for the Hollywood foreign press association seemingly. And so like, what's the point of doing that anymore? Exactly. And it was the essential appetizer award show before Mm -hmm. we get into the more weightier and substantial shows that may or may not predict where the Oscars could go. And now that being said, you know, I think the Oscars have their own can of worms in terms of issues behind the scenes and things. Mm -hmm. But the Globes in particular just never felt like they had a place culturally to me, Mm -hmm. at least in the years that I've watched. And this year kind of feels no different. I mean, none of the nothing really surprised me about anything with the winners or nominations. Yeah. Um, I mean, with the hype surrounding Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. I was pretty tickled to see Colin Farrell win for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical yes. for Banshees of Inishirin. Um, I think that's a really well-deserved win and one that I'm happy is is will hopefully have a, enough attention drawn to it from this point for maybe the non-film fans who saw it months ago. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, will that carry any weight for the Academy? Who can say? But for something like this... I just don't necessarily see the purpose in making as grandiose of a show. Yeah. You could very well pull these winners on Twitter like they did last year, I believe. Didn't they have, have a whole a... bunch of typos in like their Twitter announcements too? That was like the yeah, extra but, funny you know, thing. You know, they got to keep the things fresh in who had to way. do that or whoever it was. Oh, bless, bless. But, you know, for what it is, I'll say... This is a very interesting crop of awards contender films. So from that aspect, I like to see what these groups are voting for. Mm-hmm. But do I have the same draw that I did three years ago to devote the three, three and a half hours to watch them? Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I can't say that I do. Um, well, luckily, we won't be able to have this conversation much longer because the Oscars are next week. Oh, wait, no, that's wrong. They're in freaking mid-March. <laughs> Yes, like as if we're not going to be ta- tired of talking about Banshees of Inisherin like two more months from now. <laughs> and as bless Steven Spielberg and the Fablemans, but there's only so many times like we can talk about it. Oh my god, <laughs> we really and, need to. We need to get rid. Th- this is this is my plea to Hollywood. We need to get rid of like three fourths of these award shows. Make the Oscars like early February at latest, and we need to yes. we need to get this out of the way and. <laughs> We, and move on to another year of movies. Right. And not have this sort of drawn out, like, 
six month award season process. Um, but I, I absolutely. Anyway, um, let's move <laughs> on to talking about some movies that have kind of come out in the last few weeks. Um, I'm curious. You you saw Megan, right? Which is yes, which is kind of yes. the the it, it's it's been a, a pretty pretty good sized hit. The new horror film from Blumhouse, kind of an updated creepy doll movie. I unfortunately missed the press screening due to some severe weather here in town. Ah. But um, I'm curious what your thoughts were for it because I was admittedly a bit suspicious considering you know January is typically the sort of dumping ground for movies. Yes very very rarely does anything good come out in february but most of the reactions i was seeing on site on online were people saying like it's pretty fun and like it 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 kind of is not like like is knowingly ridiculous and is like a pretty solid night out at the movies well jesse i hate to damper damper your parade there um but Uh, your suspicions are correct oh okay (laughs) um you know January, as you said, is a dumping ground for cinema. It's it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. So hearing the hype surrounding Megan really interested me going in. But the problem here is that the film never pushes its premise far enough. Mm. Um, director Gerard Johnstone has been very vocal about the film being rated R and then the studio wanting a PG-13 cut and this PG-13 cut being more violent. Mm-hmm. That's not the case in what I saw. Um, This is very much the sleepover slumber party PG-13 horror movie. That really isn't even a horror film. It's more of a a dark satire and comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're on board for that, you're going to have a great time. There's enough fun to be had. But to those people who are saying this is a uh, revolutionized take for a January film, calm down. Just take a pause. That's well, all I'll say. Maybe I'll add it to the pile of airplane movies, which is just stuff that I like. I'm not going to go out to the theater to see, and you know, I'm just going to save for when I like come across it on a Delta flight, and I'm like, well, this is the time, this is the moment. Perfect. Now more Perfect. than ever. A hundred and two minutes. You know, you you're on a nice two hour flight. Let Megan just walk you through it. You'll have a good enough time. I will say props to the team at Blumhouse for I think figuring out a. And and they're very good at this, but like a fun, very viral online way to market this movie. Yes. And quality aside, I mean, realizing a month like January that is kind of like, as we said, sort of a barren, empty ground for movies and being willing to or or having the, the, the foresight to be like, we can put this out. We'll do like a kind of kooky, very viral online marketing thing. Like, I don't know if you saw there was like. I guess uh, Allison Williams was like on the Today Show, and there were people yes. in the 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 crowd you can see through the windows that had like the masks of the doll on, and and finding kind of like fun ways to kind of get this movie in front of people, which I I I think is such a such a challenge in this day and age because of how algorithms work and how online we are, and just. I've been surprised at kind of the sheer amount of movies that I've brought up to just kind of like friends or coworkers or family members where they're like, I've never even heard of that. And it's, you know, probably because like the, they're, they're not being sort of fed that, that marketing stuff in the, in the, uh, in the algorithms that we go through on a day-to-day basis. But 
Blumhouse sort of knowing how to like cleverly market this movie to America to kind of get them to go out and see a creepy doll horror movie. Um, bravo oh, on on that front. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you know, as you said, for something that's a night out in the theater, mm-hmm. if you go with some friends, maybe have a cocktail beforehand, you will have a good time. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is that trailer really takes out a lot of the surprises. Oh. We'll you just when, we'll just hate, say that you hate when that happens. Uh, um, I think the next one for us to fire up is White Noise, which yes. um, couldn't quite find a, a a a time to talk about it, just because it took me forever to see it. I don't think I saw it until it went up on Netflix, like mm. New Year's Eve or something like that. Very very yes. late in the year. Um, I think this fits into something Daniel Feingold and I talked about on the year end episode of. 2020 one of the trends of 2022 being like auteur directors getting big blank checks to do these sort of wild crazy big swing passion projects and sort of the 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 fun push and pull or or fun discrepancy between like how many of those work and how many didn't and us kind of landing on kind of like there's no consensus around a lot of these movies whether they were like nope or babylon or blonde or uh amsterdam or 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 this movie um but you know each of them have their like defenders and stuff like i'm a big defender of nope and you know i could see the the babylon poster behind you and stuff but this this is this i think fits in i like babylon i i've been i've been clear about that so um if we want to dissect a little bit of the babylon stuff we can but i'll just say it it really took my breath away in a lot of regards yeah, jo- Josh Martin and I did a, a fun episode on it, and you know, a, a case in point of a movie that like all the marketing I've seen for it has been like I don't, I don't know what. It's no wonder America's not coming out to this movie. Paramount of just sort of like the marketing I think has been like pretty bad across the board for this movie. Well, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with marketing, and especially with something like White Noise. Yes, that's a very hard movie to market to a mass audience, especially mm-hmm. being on a streaming service like Netflix, where it's available at the click of a button. Yeah, I after I watched it and have kind of I my my first reaction was like I kind of don't no <laughs> my first reaction was a bit it's cool they tried but also i don't quite know who this is for um while also yes. admitting that like i'm kind of the person this is for but like i don't know i can't imagine like recommending this to just like you know my aunt or something like right. that right this is obviously like noah Bombach's big ambitious i believe sort of estimated 100 million dollar adaptation of uh, Don DeLillo's uh, acclaimed satirical novel from the 1980s of the same name. Um, I'm curious, like I, I read the book um, early last or late last summer, I guess it was. Um, I'm curious if you read the book before firing up the movie. So I did not read the book, but mm. I will say I got a chance to see White Noise back in October at mm. a film fest, our local film fest 919 in Chapelville, mm-hmm. North Carolina. And seeing it with an audience at a 930 screening mm-hmm. probably gave me one of the more unique theater reactions that I've had at all of 2022 mm-hmm. because nobody knew quite knew what to think by the time the credits rolled. Interesting. And it's that sort of thing to where 
Noah Bombach is makes big swings for the fences. Mm-hmm. And there are pieces of white noise I like a lot. Yes. But I never found them to coalesce as strongly as something like Francis Ha. Mm-hmm. Or, or some of his more notable, like Marriage Story. Yes. His, his movies that have a more linear structure, in mm-hmm. a way, compared to something like this that starts as a linear structure with a toxic chemical event forcing the Gladney family out of right. their homes... And then kind of turns into this more or less message about existential dread in your personal life. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of been describing like the, and and I should say it is very, very, very faithful to the book. And I think what I find I'm, I'm pretty mixed on this movie, but I think as I kind of said earlier, I think it's cool that, they attempted to do it and I'm I sort of find it interesting and was never quite bored with the movie while also like I I think part of my interest into getting in what I said earlier about like I don't know quite how I would even go about recommending this to someone or even like saying you should check it out because what quote-unquote enjoyment I got from it was sort of it's interesting seeing what aspects of this very faithful adaptation of this very weird novel work and work as cinema and which parts do not translate to a visual medium and so both the book and the movie as you said like it kind of they're kind of it's kind of broken into three chunks like it starts off as this campus satire it develops into this disaster movie and kind of the middle chunk of it and then towards the end and the last third becomes this much more interior much more existential story about like the fear of death and like what 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 is left for us afterwards and are we just sort of charging to this end point and then we're it's just like blackness and blank um and i think like that middle chunk of it the the airborne toxic event disaster movie element of it is probably the part that works best and that I was just going to say that's my personal favorite of the three vignettes. Yeah, I think like when the movie gets into that gear, it was really clicking for me and I think Noah Baumbach shows a skill a filmmaking skill set that I didn't quite know he had in his back pocket, which is like I I would not have thought of him as like a filmmaker who could do these kind of grand set pieces and he's able to do them in you know these these like spielberg level massive not even action sequences but just like there's lots of effects and kind of like moving parts and stuff like that extras the camera following one figure through kind of this masses and also and even the stuff with like the cloud the 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 air the sort of toxic cloud itself and there's like the one scene of like driver at the gas station pump and sort of without realizing it you just sort of see the like shadow of this like sort of image of death sort of like going right in front of the moon and sort of having that image sort of capture all of this dread and fear and like without him even realizing it he's been exposed to all these toxic chemicals but uh go go on ahead with what you were saying no i i was saying i think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of driver um because one of the strongest elements of the film for me are the performances of adam driver and greta gerwig Mm-hmm. because i think they click so well in this sort of existential screwball comedy way mm-hmm. to where 
no matter what Adam Driver was doing, like there's a particular sequence where he has to run through just chaos. Right. I mean, pandemonium. And it's one of the most impressive physical comedy sequences I've seen since DiCaprio having to get out of his car in The Wolf of Wall Street. Interesting. And and those moments click so well for me that once the film slows down, mm-hmm. it loses the the wit that I would say it had beforehand. Yeah, I think it's it's when it gets into that that last third, I think it's just a great example about something that really works on page in a novel because yes. in as the book is the book is written in sort of first person from the the Adam Driver character's point of view and it's it it reads as though the kind of like anxieties and ramblings of someone's internal thought and as that kind of like last third begins to like dip into more sort of i mean the both the book and the movie are already pretty like strange and uh cartoonish at 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 times but like as it sort of starts to get a bit more surreal in sort of that last third there's a way in which you're kind of like is this just somebody's like inner anxieties like manifesting themselves is this real and that sort of works in sort of the abstract sense in a novel but as soon as you try and literalize that on screen i i kind of found the movie really sort of hitting the brakes and struggling to kind of translate that yes to to the screen in the last third and it's interesting you bringing up driver and gerwig who i i love both of them and like would actually be a thousand percent down for more movies with them as a married couple i think i like their performances but even their performances i think are an example of like what kind of work the struggle of adapting something that works on page to the screen where you have Don DeLillo's prose, which is very, very heightened. It's very, very kind of like staccato and very, very like intentionally like overly intellectual in a way. And it reads like very beautifully on a page. But as soon as you have actors, even as talented as Driver Gerwig or Don Cheadle, try and sort of speak that that prose and give it kind of like an emotional undercurrenting to it. I, I could feel the strain of sort of like that's not quite working for me or just like listening to Driver and Gerwig talk in this movie. The, that language that is is so overwhelming. Specific. And I th- so, yeah, so specific and so overwhelming and I think captures so many of the book's themes of both sort of making fun of academia while also kind of like, as you said, the sort of existential fears of death and sort of uh, the way we sort of latch on to sort of like our kind of capitalist and consumerist tendencies as a way of comfort and the way that kind of infiltrates our lives. Like all of that is kind of all those themes are sort of integrated into the language. And I think that's what makes it a great book. But then when you have like an actor sort of speaking that language to another person, like as I was watching, I was like, who the hell talks like this? Like this is so exactly. unusual and is like not working for me. And it's weird, like, have you, we might have actually talked about this because you were on a Cronenberg episode, but have you seen the the Cronenberg Don DeLillo movie Cosmopolis with Robert Pattinson? Yes, I so, have. And so, I think that one translates a lot better. Yes, I think partially because, I mean, I don't remember liking that movie, but it 
it sprung to mind because I remember the way that all the characters speak in that movie is very, very deadpan and very, very um, understated in a way mm-hmm. that sort of like the language of the the novel and the way his characters speak to each other is so heightened that you almost have to take away like any human emotion in order to sort of make it work on screen. And I think the curious choice to like seeing driver and Gerwig trying to find kind of an emotional through line to like what the characters are saying to each other, I think only sort of breaks down that language to me at a certain point watching it. Agreed. And I think, you know, somebody like Cronenberg is more adaptable and not as distinct mm-hmm. as a, a stylistic voice as somebody like Bombach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what? when mentioning Cronenberg made me kind of come to my ultimate realization with Light Noise, which is Bombach and Delio, they don't quite have a a cohesion with each other Mm -hmm. they're both very blatant styles Mm -hmm. and the pieces in white noise that worked most for me were the bombach pieces yeah and you know i won't necessarily talk about the in credits i think we could i don't i don't know that it's a spoiler but i well we we could say it's got like maybe it's a musical number right there's a musical number that ends the movie that i think is is in of itself, one of the standout scenes of a movie last year, in my opinion. Likewise. And it feels very much like a Noah Baumbach film. So going through those shifts to get to that, I can see where a lot of audiences would be turned off. Mm -hmm. Because you do have to sit through a lot of existential monologues before we get to those more fun and and a bit more, I don't want to say joyous, but a bit more uplifting sequences um it's it's more or less an experiment that i just don't think has the nailed the balancing act yeah yeah i think i think i'll kind of end in my thoughts on it by just you know again coming back to what i said earlier i'm glad he made it i'm glad netflix like gave him the money to do this on such a, a big grand scale um, I, I think it is, it is a fascinating work of adaptation, even if I think like towards the end, despite sections like that, that middle bit that, that it works that I was so thrilled by, I think as a whole, it kind of doesn't work. And it's an example of like a great book that works best in sort of novel form. And, and yes. like, once you try and translate that to a totally different artistic medium, it kind of breaks down a little bit. Um, Unfortunately. Yes. Nonetheless, one of the more, I think, interesting movies I, I saw last year. And most ambitious movies of last year, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Un- unquestionably. Um, what do you, you want to talk about next? Do you want to like keep in the, in the Netflix kind of waters and, and talk a little bit about The Pale Blue Eye? Let's knock it out. Let's knock it out of the way. So this is a new kind of mystery thriller uh, starring Christian Bale. Um, it's directed by Scott Cooper, who uh, made stuff like Crazy Heart, which won Jeff Bridges and Oscar, uh, Out of the Furnace and Hostels, which also starred Bale in the, uh, I think, quite bad. Um, I, I Actually, I'm, I've truthfully like never been a 
big fan of Scott Cooper's films. Um, the last one I was going to mention is the the Whitey Bulger movie with Johnny Depp that I believe is called Black Mass. Is that what it's called? Black Mass. And then he did one other horror film That's last year, right. Antlers. I did that. Not I never that. got around to seeing. Yeah. But yeah, um, this is basically it's it's adapted from a book. Uh, it stars Bale as this detective who is hired to sort of solve uh, a murder that happens at, is it West Point? It's some sort of military academy in kind of the early 1800s. And eventually his kind of like Watson to his uh, Sherlock Holmes is uh, none other than Edgar Allan Poe, who is a young cadet at this uh this military academy and is i think uh, the the one like best thing i will say about this movie is um actor harry melling playing uh young edgar Allan poe i i think was like a very fun performance in a movie that i i gotta be honest i just found just like interminably dull and a slog to sit through which i admit is an issue i've had with almost all of scott cooper's movies is is like finding them like very like technically well made but just there's they're just like there's a self-seriousness about them that is just i think kind of like makes it drag and i was like kind of dozing off a bit watching this on on netflix a couple nights ago well and i'm i'm in the boat same boat with you with scott cooper um i definitely run hot and cold with him mm-hmm. um you know out of the furnace is one that i'd like to forget crazy heart is one that i rather enjoyed um i really did not like hostels and that that is gr- one i admittedly i fell asleep in the theater and a like a, a attendant had to come up and like tap me on the shoulder and be like you need to leave and I, it was really embarrassing but like i actively like fell asleep during that movie <laughs> well going into the pale blue eyes since hostels was the last new release scott cooper movie i had had the chance to see my expectations were relatively low mm-hmm. and while i was never bored with this one mm-hmm. um it's far from perfect but he gets that cold and chilly 1800s aesthetic so mm-hmm. dead on yeah that it worked for me in that regard and harry melling is so engaging mm-hmm. and the film takes some very big swings in terms of narrative twists oh yeah what, once with. it got there i was i mean the the sort of final twists on twists on twists i i was just sort of like almost one of those where i want to like throw something at the television and like (laughs) hurl a tomato from the kitchen or something like that right right no and it's one of those things where when i've i've had a chance to talk with people about the movie i can't begrudge them any of those complaints Mm -hmm. but i was on board because i wanted to see how far he would push it Mm. and i think he pushes it into such a ridiculous area Mm mm-hmm that with an actor like Christian Bale, I was mm-hmm. I was never not entertained. He needs him and Bale need to be separated from each other. Is my take the because because Bale <laughs> is also someone who look I like Christian Bale, but Christian Bale is someone who also can get like a little a little too sulkin and a little too like tightly yes. wound as an actor. I think when. He's with someone like Cooper, and he's been in like multiple movies of Cooper's. And this is three now. Yes, yes, because he was in Hostels yes. and uh, Out of the Out Furnace. Out of the Furnace. Um, yep. 
but you know, he's he's an actor who I think he needs the performances of his I've liked the most. And this this I I gotta shout out one of my former roommates, uh Mark, who posed this question in a group chat that I, I kind of want to ask you here in a bit. But yeah, the performances of Bales that I like the most. I think are when he's with a director that can kind of loosen him up a little bit. And I think when he's with someone who gets him to like locked down and kind of tightly just tight as an actor, I think he's like a lot less effective. I think you need that kind of like, he needs someone who can loosen him up, but still know how to channel that kind of like super intense like method actor zone he goes in right but find a way to kind of add a play put a like playful spin on that as opposed to just letting like that turn him into a bit of a kind of like lock jawed dull leading man well and that's you know it's it's funny you bring up how he needs the right director mm-hmm. that's why i always bring up his work with david o russell i mean mm. they're not all obviously hits he is the one performance i think works in amsterdam a movie I, I, was I hated 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 but like he is the he's, one person who who is like on the right wavelength of that movie and what it should and be he's having fun yes and and that's something we don't get to see a lot from him mm-hmm. um and especially in you know of course a post post bail batman world I want to see more directors give him a chance to loosen up mm-hmm. because if you listen to Q and A's and things, I think that more buoyant energy is in him, mm-hmm. but he's kind of been put, as you said, in this method actor lane mm-hmm. and Scott Cooper doesn't quite have a grasp on how to make him more relatable and not as dour. And yeah. This, this whereas, movie I think but, needs a little bit of, of, it's it is pulpy when you read it on page like it's got like satanic yes. cults and stuff but i think it, yes. it needs a pulpier director like i mean i don't i don't think either of these two people i'm about to mention would would go near this project but like it needs like a brian de palma or a david fincher or someone who's got like a little bit more of a sense of humor to kind of like right. run with this material and have a bit of fun with it instead of making it like so so moody and so dour and, and serious and I would argue that there are some really entertaining performances in here, um, mm-hmm. like Harry Melling as Edgar Allan Poe, um, like Gillian Anderson mm-hmm. is another one who shows up for a few scenes that is, again, playing to the fences, but it worked for me. Um, so if there was more of that energy, I think this is something a lot more people would be talking about. But its spades of weirdness really left an impression on me. So. Okay, the question I wanted to pose to you in regard to bail, uh, one of my yes. college roommates put put in. I I just thought to ask you this. Um, put in a group chat. He was like, "Christian Bale has been in mostly bad movies for the last decade, and we don't we don't talk about that enough." And 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 he he was like, "Name what are the good Christian Bale movies that have come out from 2013 to to now?" And and I could maybe only think of two off the top of my head and that was the big short and ford versus ferrari oh okay okay so i can i'll I'll be i'll take it up to three okay the only other one i can give is american hustle because i think that that's fair because that is such an and and part of that i i say look at the time it came out Mm -hmm. it was post batman Mm -hmm. it was post out of the furnace 
that was the first performance that I saw him essentially loosen up in. Mm -hmm. And as an audience member showed me the potential he had to be more comedic and a bit more buoyant with Mm -hmm. his roles. But unfortunately, those are still few and far between. Like I'd say after that point, we don't get another very energetic performance until Ford versus Ferrari after Mm -hmm. the big short that is. Yeah. Um, and, but and that's, even that's then, a good question. Yeah. I mean, American Hustle is one, like, I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out. And my memory of it is like having had, I, I guess I just didn't think about it just now, but cause I hadn't seen it since it came out in theaters. Right. But my right. memory now thinking back on it, like, what did I think in 2013, whenever that came out was like thinking it was not as good as the hype, but having had like a solidly, fun time i think walking out being like i don't understand anything that happened in that movie but those were at least some fun performances so i guess i got my 10 bucks worth or however much movies cost back then (laughs) well and it had i it had a a energy to it right from david o russell's direction that i feel like he became known for Mm. or was known for kind of in a i heart huckabee sort of world right where it there was this this chance of weirdness at any turn Right. That always kept you engaged and a bit unsettled. And I, I just wish Bale would go back to those kind of roles versus something like this that's only in the self-serious and arguably right on the border of self-parody. Right. Like the Pale Blue Eye. Um, let's let's transition to some some outside of Netflix stuff that's, let's that's do been it. coming out. Um, let's do it. You proposed talking about uh, The Sun, which I believe January is now sort of this weird time where kind of like stuff that's been playing in like one or two theaters or like a couple of cities like across the country for like awards consideration is like slowly rolling out. We might even do an episode like coming up in January since it's kind of a light month of just some like international stuff that's slowly rolling out that would be kind of like worth people checking out. Um, But I, I kind of could not quite pass up the opportunity. I, I saw this movie back in like early November. And, and I saw it in late November. Really, really did not like it. And was like, I guess if it if it becomes like a, a big enough talking point in the culture, like I guess we'll devote an episode to it. And then it kind of just sort of got ignored. And so I kind of felt at peace with like, Eh, we're just not going to talk about it and like I can spare this movie whatever I think about it um but you've brought it up and it's a light month so we might as well talk about it because now it's rolling out across the country um this is playwright playwright Florian Zeller's uh follow-up to um The Father which won Anthony Hopkins and Oscar a couple years ago uh like that movie it is based off of a stage play of his it stars Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern as a divorced couple who uh, realize they maybe kind of need to uh, intervene a little bit in the life of their uh, teenage son who has been sort of, uh, I, I forget because it's been so long, is that he's missing school or he's acting out at school. Ba- basically, he's he's struggling with um, severe depression and makes they make the decision for him to instead live with his mom, live with his dad. And his dad's new and wife, his new girl, his yes. new wife or girlfriend, who's played by uh, Vanessa Kirby, and it becomes this 
on on paper a a movie that I think has good intentions in sort of being about mental health and a being about the the agony a parent has of like your your child is really struggling with is struggling with something that you can't quite understand and you just want them to feel better but are not quite sure like what what is best for them um how this movie goes about tackling that 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 very real um thing that so many americans or so many people around the world go through i i admittedly found appalling but um i will toss to you since you're the one who brought up like us talking about it before i like go on my my ranting scree about like and 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 just in all fairness i think for you and i to talk about this movie we're going to need to talk about the ending so if for whatever reason you want to see this movie you can just skip ahead because Gabe and I are just going to have to talk about how this movie ends in order to, you know, fully sort of vent about, about how this movie chooses to handle mental health. Can, can we just address that? This isn't necessarily going to be a review, but more of a rant. Sure. Um, Sure. Because this is, this was the worst film I saw last year. It's, it's near the bottom for me. So by, by a margin. Yeah. Um, especially coming off of something like the father mm-hmm. which handles dementia in such a, a mature way mm-hmm. and in a way that i hope certain audiences who may not have understood beforehand can after they see the film mm-hmm. and i would say if you have not seen the father please 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 check it out because it's one that i consistently go back to um just as a reminder of personal things in my own family and so on the problem with the sun is it treats the, it treats mental illness as this plot device mm, that is mm-hmm. supposed to teach us more about these characters which would work if the mental illness didn't teeter along the lines of parody there is just no moment of honesty in this film for me everything rings false um Certain sequences feel like they're coming out of telenovelas. And they never, ever coalesce into a message for an audience to take away. Like, there's a particular scene, and again, spoilers if you are dying to see this film, involving when Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern commit their son to a a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And an interaction between both of them, their son, and the doctor in the room. And it's a supposed to be this big weighty moment deciding if they want to take him home or possibly li- let leave him committed. As someone who is has a basic understanding of how those sorts of industries and businesses work in relation to clients, that scene would never happen. Mm-hmm. There would never be a moment where those parents are in the room with their son after he's been committed. And the film more or less has those sort of broad swing moments peppered throughout to where everything rings so inaccurate and so manipulated to where I just had no sympathy for anyone by the time the credits rolled. Mm -hmm. And then there are these weird interjections of scenes like a scene with Anthony Hopkins meant to kind of put some insight into the Hugh Jackman character's denial of the situation. Mm -hmm. 
that feel like they're coming out of a different movie. Yeah. And the longer and longer it went on, the more and more angry it left me. Mm-hmm. Because there's just there's just no truth there compared to something like The Father. And the truth, and to all those listeners, I'm saying truth in quotes here, feels like a screenwriter's idea of mental illness mm-hmm. without ever having experienced it themselves. Yeah. And that, by the time the credits rolled, is the big thing I took away. And I don't necessarily blame the cast here. I've, I've read a lot of reviews kind of, you know, honing in on Zen McGraw's performance. Who who and plays I, the, the teenage The, the teenage, teenage son. son. Yeah. Yes. And I, I don't think he's the issue, and I don't think Hugh Jackman or Laura Dern are the issue. The writing just never has moments of realism. Mm-hmm. It's It's, as we were talking about earlier in the episode with the pale blue eye being on the line of parody versus serious thriller, the sun teeters into that parody category for me. Mm-hmm. And depending on, on your, your expectations that could make for a fun watch as a fun, bad film. But for this kind of material, it, it felt like a very cheap shot. Yeah. And it is something that I, I really am to anyone out there who was on the fence about seeing it. I really want to discourage you from from that because there are so many better and more well-written and just in general smarter films that know how to handle this material. Yeah. Uh, what I, did you think? I, I agree with you that I don't think the writing is quite there and the writing feels um, a bit a bit like after school specially um, and or a bit like kind of like bad mid 80s tv movie um you know i i don't necessarily like to beat up on on younger actors but i i will say i i was not i think for me part of the problem of the movie is is the zen mcgrath performance um which i to to be fair to him i don't think that character is is very well written and i think that character is written as sort of a collection of cliches about mental illness apparently especially mental illness and depression when it comes to teenagers um and i think never feels like a fully never feels like a fully realized person um but i i think as far as his performance um because i will say i i do think jackman is quite good in the movie and you know jack jack actor hugh jackman laura dern uh Vanessa Kirby like they're good enough actors that they can kind of like make do with this with this material um I think Zinn McGroth is as you as I said sort of given a bunch of cliches to play and is playing them like very it's one of those young actor performances where it's like I really want to show you that I'm acting and yes. I think that hurts the movie and never makes you sort of buy into the sort of predicament that this family is in or buy into the suffering that this kid is going through. Um, and so I just sort of felt totally disconnected and from the movie as it was going on. And then it gets into, I think, the 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 sort of climax of this movie, which, as I said, we, we need to spoil, because this is, I think, what teetered it into, like, oh, this is, this is you know, kind of like, 
a kind of dull whatever movie and right. like the 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 performances are are not sort of lining up um particularly between Zach between Jackman and McGroff and um then it gets to to its its final climax which as you said is this scene at the the sort of mental health hospital and I thought puts this sort of like very thorny hard uh predicament in the hands of the Jackman and Dern character of sort of like the doctor is telling you your your son is is not healthy cannot come home but is the son is sort of like in tears begging them like please take me home I'm sorry I, I want to go home and at first I thought like all right this movie is going to kind of like at least force on us as an audience kind of like a hard choice of these parents having to be like, we, we have to, despite everything our son is telling us, like we have to do what's best for, for him and sort of keep him there as the doctors are quote unquote saying. Um, but then you get this scene where they're walking out and Jackman just sort of stops and gives Lord during this look of like, we can't do that. And then the next scene cut, they're in the car and they're going back home. They go back to, I believe it's Hugh Jackman's apartment and they're all everything's all peaches and cream he's met the teenage son's making them tea they're talking about like oh when was the last time we were all together isn't this let's great? go to a movie let's go to a movie what's playing and the the kid is like hey mom and dad i gotta go to the bathroom and they're like you go to the bathroom son and he like goes <laughs> he disappears off to the bathroom and then lord Dern and hugh jackman are having a conversation about whatnot like their how their lives have gone and should should say that the movie up until this point has really, really, really been laying it on thick that Hugh Jackman keeps a gun in the bathroom or a gun in yes. the laundry room that's next to the bathroom or something like that. And so, you know, the, the, the teenage son goes off to the bathroom and Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern are having this like light kind of heartwarming conversation. And then bang, we hear like the, the sound of the gun go off in the bathroom and they rush off down the hall and you hear them just like wailing and screaming and that the the teenage kid is basically like as soon as they got home he went and grabbed that gun and killed himself um and i this was the first this is not even the worst part of this ending we'll get to that here in a bit but this yeah, was the first let's... moment when i was like i became sort of viscerally angered by the idea of like that's a pretty cruel ending to throw onto this this movie about this like real f challenging thing that so many families go through and to basically have this kind of like wagging of the finger smug ending of like ha these stupid parents look what they got by pulling him out that's what you get for pulling your kid out of the hospital you should have known better and i was like that that is like a really dark kind of sadistic ending for this movie to have and then the movie well, <laughs> then, takes things a step further with one of the most sadistic and completely, completely, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I just have to get these words out. Sadistic and manipulative. Oh, and yeah. We, parodies. We, right. We, we, we got to then, then it angered me further by like, okay, so you, you've pulled this sort of very sadistic moment in your movie and so but like at the very at the very very least to the movie's credit you're going to make us as an audience sort of like live live in this sort of like really tragic ending but then 
it flashes forward like several years and Hugh Jackman is in a different apartment with his new wife played by Vanessa Kirby. They're throwing a dinner party. She's like, hey, some, someone's at the door. He goes to get it because she's got to do something in the kitchen. Who's there? Oh, it's the teenage son. He survived. Oh my gosh. And he's like, I live in Canada now. It's this amazing wonderland. And I have a and girlfriend. And here's my book, dad. Right. And you know what my book's called? It's called Overcoming Death. And you know what? On the front page, I dedicated it to you. And then I'm like, oh gosh, really screw this movie now? Because now it's like, we can't even trust the audience to like live in the sort of like this tragic ending. We got to like under undercut it by having a like, wait, 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 we don't want you to go out sad. It's okay. But then the movie really gets worse because then all of a sudden is there him and his teenage son are having this conversation. We hear over Hugh Jackman's shoulder, Vanessa Kirby being like, honey, what are you what are you staring at? And we pan back over to Hugh Jackman is just like dead staring into nothing. And the movie's like, boom, gotcha. Twist ending. The sun actually is dead. All right, roll credits. And I found that so appalling to kind of like take this as, as we've been saying, this very real, very tragic thing that so many families go through and basically like reduce it to this like gimmicky ending that did nothing and is basically just this like gotcha moment i and 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 to and like i know florian zeller like the the father has its own sort of twists and turns with kind of like that towards the end of that movie i think actually fit in with like it puts you in the mindset of someone with dementia all those twists and pivots it takes but this i thought added nothing to it and was just sort of like a cheap kind of like pull the rug out from under you. And, and I, I don't know. It just like really made my stomach churn walking out of the movie. And it was just like Agreed. an already like bad, like after school, especially sort of weak family melodrama that then just had like one of the worst endings I've seen in a, a movie in like the last several years. Oh yes. And it's, it's more or less, I would say the, the disappointing thing about the film for me is the potential it could have had Mm -hmm. to be something like the father and you said something jesse that i really agree with where if we ended on his suicide Mm -hmm. it's an ending that would allow us as the audience to sit Mm -hmm. and kind of ponder what we had seen Mm -hmm. still the movie as a whole wouldn't improve no but it might have a bit more of a weight to it than that twist. I think that's what makes the father work so impressively well, Mm -hmm. is that ending allows us just to sit and kind of think about what we've just seen. Mm -hmm. Whereas this attempt to tie everything up in a nice bow, Mm -hmm. but then pull the rug out from under you and say, oh no, the world's a really bad place and sad and dark and dangerous, has no sort of relevancy and feels like it's coming from an entirely different filmmaker mm-hmm. and in or, my or even screening, or even to 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 maybe even push back against that not even just a different filmmaker but this feels like a a manufactured twist ending that a a less experienced filmmaker or player i'd be conv- i'd be interested to know where the play for this if it has that twist ending where it falls in sort of zeller's history as a playwright because it seems like the kind of twist that is only there for a twist that like someone puts in you know what i mean someone puts into like a screenplay just to be like shocking but then like 
a wiser, more seasoned writer would not do would be like, that's just kind of gimmicky and like really doesn't add anything. Agreed. Agreed. It's all a gimmick on a movie that is already a gimmick in and of itself. Yeah. So easily the worst film of the year for me. Please, please, please avoid it like the plague. Plain and simple. Um, well, the last one I want to I want to bring up, and then I'll leave you if you have any others that I've forgotten about to bring up. Um, did you see the... Um, actually, bef- before I even ask you this, Gabe, did you know there was a Whitney Houston biopic released over the holidays? Oh, yes, I did, <laughs> and I avoided it. Yeah. Oh. Um, I saw it. It's called I Want to Dance with Somebody. I don't have to talk about it too much. Um, I just think it's kind of, like, unusual that, like, a big like Whitney Houston biopic came out and just like it feels like that movie doesn't exist and I mean I I saw it um it's it's not good it's not good it (laughs) you know and that's so disappointing because of Cassie Clemens she I mean she's giving I I mean it's not a bad performance it's not a bad performance she's giving it's just like it is the most it might even rival, and it is the same screenwriter. It might rival Bohemian Rhapsody as the most lazy music biopic I've ever seen. Of Ooh, like, that's a deep cut. Of like, is just as kind of like by the num. It is every music biopic cliche you've you've seen, while also like, kind of the most boringly realized in terms of the visuals on screen like it's it's been funny after i watched it there are like scenes in there that are attempting to kind of recreate whitney houston music videos and even then i went and like watched some of the music videos that it was attempting to recreate on youtube and was like the actual music video (laughs) looks better than it did in the movie like the movie looks like a cheaper like photocopy of the actual mu- like the music video itself has way more style and like filmmaking pizzazz than the recreations of the music videos in the movie but it's just a movie that like as i said it's every music biopic cliche you could imagine it i think really offers no insight into whitney houston as as an artist as a person as a celebrity figure um it is chock full of scenes that are just sort of like, you know, Whitney Houston in an office with her manager played by Stanley Tucci and is like, I need a new hit single. And he's like, Whitney, I got just the song for you and puts <laughs> pulls out a cassette tape, puts it in the cassette player. And it's like the beat to like, um, like, how will I know or something like that? And she will then just start like jumping on the couch and has got like every every lyric possible about like the, the song Tom perfectly Cruise jumping on out. the couch and Oprah energy. Exactly. I, I think I think the scene I'm thinking of, though, there is one like that for how will I know is um her song. It's not right, but it's OK, which was is kind of the like, you know, it's a sort of like feminist battle cry song. And the scene is literally like her in the middle of the night going to her manager's hotel room or something like that. And him being like, Whitney, are you up? Why are you up? And her being like, I need, I need a song. I need uh, a, a, 
a, a feminist song, a, a song for all the women to sing when their heart's been broken. And this is after her learning that, <laughs> you know, her her husband has been cheating on her. And he's like, Whitney, I got just the song for you and puts it in the cassette tape. <laughs> and it's like the exact it, it is full of scenes like that. That is just like it, it, it goes on parody level of like, you know, you could almost uh leave the theater being like i really enjoyed this female spin on um walk hard the dewey cox story of like that that is how much it is like writing the music biopic cliches so um whitney houston is awesome but uh i i would say that the whitney houston biopic like left me left me very very kind of just i don't even know disappointed is the word i don't know what expectations i had but just sort of like Man, that that felt really like half baked. That felt like a really half baked movie that I just watched. So, well, as on behalf of you know all of the millions who didn't see the movie, uh-huh. I would like to thank you for biting the bullet on that one. Yes, um, you you took one for critics everywhere. <laughs> well, uh, before we wrap up, Gabe, do you have any last uh, recent releases from the last few weeks that uh, we haven't touched on? I think I think we did a, a a nice sort of smorgasbord of everything. <laughs> no, I I think I think I'm all caught up. Um, we definitely tackled some very divisive movies, mm-hmm. um, and some certainly have their merits, while others don't. Yeah, but if anything, it's made me very excited to be done with award season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks again for stopping by. In the coming weeks, I'm sure we'll have some film inquiry people on to talk about this year's Sundance lineup. Yes. Uh, as I said, we'll probably do kind of uh, a roundup of some of the the foreign language films that have come out and the stuff from international cinema that is slowly expanding across the country now that we're in the thick of award season and uh come february we'll have a new m night Shyamalan movie to talk about which is always fun whether they're good or bad 